Welcome to Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. If I can just ask one thing to my new or old listeners, please hit the subscribe button and also share this podcast with friends. It means more than you realise. I used to rock backwards and forwards thinking that 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 would calm me. When I would do drugs, I would sit and I'd just dig at my gums or... And when you rub cocaine on your on your gums or you snort cocaine or you take drugs, your gums recede even quicker. And my partner sat next to me and he was like, pulled all your teeth out. And I'd be like, yeah, but that wasn't self-harming. I had no self-worth, I had no self-respect. I had lost all of that long before. And you know, that process of putting down drink and drugs is a really, really daunting and heavy task. In today's episode, I speak to DJ Fat Tony. He has DJed for some of the biggest people on the planet. From George Michael, Andy Warhol, at Madonna's 30th, and even more recently, at Brooklyn Beckham's wedding. Fat Tony is the DJ of choice for the generation of superstars. But beneath the glamour, there were addictions to sex, drugs, and drink. He endured years of childhood abuse, and Fat Tony discovered afterwards, and later on in his life, that he had AIDS. We cover many upsetting topics in today's episode and it is longer than usual because I have to say this interview took me to places that I never thought were possible for one person. He has had one of the most colourful and extraordinary lives from spending over a million pounds on drugs to ending up in a coma to the point where it got so bad that he pulled all of his teeth out with a screwdriver. But I am absolutely thrilled to say that he is now in recovery and brave enough to tell all of you and me his story today. I do want to highlight that there is some adult content in here and some upsetting content. So please do be aware when listening to this. I cannot wait to share this episode with you. And I really want to thank DJ Fat Tony from the bottom of my heart for inviting us into his home and being so brave to tell us his full story. Tony, welcome. Hi, how are you? You alright? I am good. I have so much to talk to you about today because I've just finished reading your book. Amazing. I know it's one of the first, it's not actually out yet, but it will be when this is aired. How did you feel writing that? Because it's basically your life from start to finish and I have to say you've had can I just stop you it's not finished (laughs) my life's not finished oh yeah that's true (laughs) till now till now till now till now um you know what it took it was two and a half years of sitting down and and actually because we we the writing process was I dictated he Mikey wrote it and then he came back to me uh and I would read what I said the day before and then I'd be like oh no I don't want to say that let's change that and change this so it was a really long, drawn-out process. And I kind of think I focused more on the non-trauma stuff at the beginning because I didn't want to talk about the trauma stuff because I found it so hard to deal with. And, um, and then we started discussing that stuff and I had to stop for a while. And then I, I decided I was going to start trauma therapy. And I went through a, 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 a year and a half of intense trauma therapy around it. 
just so that I could process most of that stuff in the book. Do you get what I mean? It, you know, but coming out the other end of it, I'm very vulnerable. I feel very raw. I'm nervous, to yeah. say the least. I, it really, I really like it when people tell me they've read it because I think the more people that read it will, and understand what it is, the better. Because I think people expect it to be like, um, oh, me and my superstar friends or me and the party lifestyle. And there's a really small sprinkling of that in the book, obviously, because that's my life. But it's not about them. Mm. It's about me and, it's, and the stories are being, and it's really difficult to write the truth as well because my truth isn't necessarily the truth. It's how I see it. Yeah. Or if I was in a situation and, I, um, and obviously it wasn't, you know, I, I would always come out of it shining like some kind of mental superstar in my own mind uh, to actually write that stuff and then actually get other people's opinions on what really happened. Mm -hmm. It's what we did. We went off and we spoke to so many different people about certain situations that had happened and got their take on it. Mm -hmm. And then we, we, we reprocessed it and re-pull it, wrote, rewrote it because, you know, my truth's not necessarily the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. And I think, I mean, one, just the brave and the vulnerability that you've exposed to do this is so admirable and you should be Thank really, you. really proud of yourself. Um, and I feel really privileged to be one of the first people to read that book. And I, I said, I mentioned to you earlier, I'm not the fastest reader. Mm -hmm. I have a very short attention span. I read that in a couple of days because it was from the minute I opened it, it was like bang, 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 bang. I mean, I can't quite believe <clears throat> even how your life started, you know, from the very beginning. It, I was just kind of, at one point I was like, is this real? Did this mm. all happen to you? And we were sat here today in your beautiful flat in Pimlico, which is just like an oasis. But that's not how you grew up yeah can no, you explain to me a it. bit about your childhood i actually grew up uh, in pimlico yeah. which is rather weird because i i never uh, you know i my dad's family come with my dad was born on the end of this street that i'm living on now uh it all sounds very weird and creepy but it just all fell into place my dad was born in there and my mum was from chelsea they had me i was born on a street called denby street which is four streets five streets away uh from here um and you know, we, we lived in, in a council flat. My mum and dad had me. They'd all, my mum my mom had already had an elder, my older brother from a previous marriage. And, you know, we just, we, it, it, we had an, like a, a working class upbringing. You know, we moved from council house to council house to council house. We ended up in Battersea, um, and where I kind of grew up, really. But then it was really weird. I, I kind of, growing up on it, on an estate in Battersea, kind of was, was like, you know, there was gangs, but they weren't gangs like, you know, knife building gangs. There were gangs of kids, everyone that grew, because it was a new build. Everyone that lived on the estate grew up together on the estate. There wasn't like people that had grown up there and new people had come. We all arrived there at the same time. So it was kind of a real com camaraderie. I can't even say the word, but you know, well, it, like literally, Everyone was there at the same time, so it was a real bonding with everyone. It's like a big family. Yeah, it really mm. was on the estate, and you know, being like probably the only out openly gay one. But I never came out as a kid; I was always out. Um, yeah, I read that actually in your book, and you said that you used to walk out when you're 14 and drag to like you know annoy your dad because he obviously. Yeah, of course. But <laughs> I had a gay brother, and I remember his in Portsmouth how afraid he was of coming out, even mm. though he always knew he was gay. 
And it was a really eye-opening kind of read for me to go, you were always just out being, where did that confidence come from? I don't think it was a confidence. I think what it was was a way of getting noticed and a way of saying, right, I'm over here. Because I had an older brother who was always in trouble with the police. I had a younger brother that was the, the sun shone out of his ass as far as my dad was concerned. I was the mummy's boy. And it was just like growing up in that, where, where they two got the attention. I had to find my own platform. So I learned really early that by being ill, I got attention. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, uh, in today's diagnosis, that was Munchausen's. You know, but uh, and I literally, from the age of three, I was always ill because I got attention. I got gifts. I got people were coming to see Tony, and um, and you know, I I very very early on never ever questioned my sexuality. I kind of knew I wasn't like everyone else, uh, and I was always just I would always like to wear my mum's clothes like most gay boys do. But you know, it was there was never a point where I thought. I need to tell my parents I'm gay. I need to tell. That was just who I was. You know, I remember my mum always saying to me that the doctor, the doctor had told her that I was gay when I was three. I was like, why would the doctor fucking tell you that? It's not chicken pox. Do you get what I mean? Uh, but she always says, yeah, he, he told, he'd said to her, I think your son might be gay. Probably like, you know, in full drag in his surgery at three, knowing, knowing me. But yeah, a very, you know, it was a way of just, being like okay don't mess with me Do you know what i mean yeah i mean it I, I think though so many kids find to struggle to have that confidence mm. and for you to actually have that confidence to do that on an estate you know in an era where it wasn't you know as open as it is today no, being it was, gay, it certainly wasn't. there is a lot of obviously confidence in that as a child even if that was a, a kind of a cry for you know attention for you to be seen yeah i think you know also i mean when when i by the age i got to like 10 and i got you know there's a um i got sexually abused around the age of 10 and like you know literally because i was so openly gay you know predators sort of saw that as a as as a weakness and thought okay there's a 10 year old kid who, who's kind of quite feminine or openly you know in their eyes as as, as as an easy target really and that kind of sexualized me really early and which that kind of made me feel like I kind of it was me against the world as such at that point and and I thought the more loud and the more gay I was and the more out there I was the more people less likely I would, people would come and, and you know it was like a, like a shield really yeah well, it was like a character yeah totally yeah. yeah and can we talk about I know this is a really hard part for you to write in the book you actually explained to me earlier that when you were writing this you actually had to step away because oh, you the found abuse chapter, yeah it made, I, I, whilst we were writing it on the, on like day two, I was like, sitting and I, and I literally, Mikey said, Oh, you, God, you look great. Are you all right? And I, and I was like, No, I feel like I'm going to be sick. And I literally ran and was vomiting. And I thought I had food poisoning for two days. And, and it wasn't food poisoning. What it was was the fact that I brought all of this stuff to the surface. And I literally, it physically made me ill. And I couldn't go back to it. And I was like, well, can we, we need to come back to that chapter further on down the line. Because, I always thought that I dealt with it. I mean, how does a 10-year-old deal with being abused? They don't. Do you know what I mean? We push it to one side. We, we overcompensate in other areas. And, you know, uh, and I think that because it, it wasn't a, 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 oh, I got abused once. It went on for four years. 
And, you know, and suddenly it became like a job. This sexual abuse became a job. It became, um, it become, it became me. I, I, you know, I kind of, everything, suddenly being sexualized at that age and having uh, a, an, a, an obsessive, addictive personality, which I've always had, was like pouring petrol on top of petrol and then setting it on fire. You know, it was, it was insane. And so I suddenly being sexualized, I had this new world. It literally, it took away my youth and it, it became like almost like a superpower because I thought I could get what I wanted from men. I could do it, you know, yeah. Because this kind of manifested, didn't it, in your book when you mentioned about the moment when you were expelled at 14. Mm, yeah. How did that happen? I mean, I, you know, I, 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 you know, I was always very good at drama, funnily enough, you know, <laughs> and uh, I literally just had this infatuation with a drama teacher at the school and he, you know, I, he'd cast me in a couple of the school plays and I was obsessed. I was obsessed and I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to work my magic. Mm. I really thought that I could like, if I put my mind to it, I could get any, any man I wanted, like who I thought was gay and, and I, I completely manipulated this situation. I would stay behind in class. I would help in drama, you know. And I, I put it on this guy. And he was only young himself. He, was, he wasn't like an old man teacher. He was, a, he, he was in his early, like late mid-20s. Do you know what I mean? And I was this like 14-year-old going on 19, 20-year-old uh, that had grown up really quickly. And I, I put... I, I, uh, yeah, and I put it on him, and, you know, I started this kind of, it, it was a fantasy affair at first, and then it kind of became real, and I kissed him, I did all of that stuff, I put it on him, and he was like, no, 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 you're, you're a kid, and I'd be like, no, I'm not a kid. Anyway, it, it transpired, we had one lunchtime, I forced myself on him, and, uh, so awful to say, but, you know, I forced myself on him. Anyway, we're having... Oral sex as such, and they, they, in this school we had these massive windows. Like, they were like, like the whole wall was a window, and it was frosted. And I was leaning on that, and they had these short radiators that I remember. I was standing on the radiator, and I went through the window backwards and smashed the window and landed up on the grass. And it was at the lunchtime, and, and, and this school was divided into different houses. They were the dining room. So I came through the window in front of the dining room with my trousers around my ankles. And I remember lying on the floor thinking, oh my God, what, you've done it now. And I got taken to the headmaster, obviously, and they, they were more concerned that I broke the window than having sex with my drama teacher. And they called my mum up to school, and my mum came, and they were like, look, we don't really want Tony here anymore. And we think it's best that we call it a day. And they, wouldn't, they would not discuss what had gone on. They just wanted to kind of push it under yeah, the carpet. Yeah, they just would. Yeah, of course, you know, because it, it was like, you know, they, how, the police would be, oh, you know, it's a scandal. And I was quite happy to leave at that point in time. I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. Do you know what I mean? So my mum and me came up with this plan that we, I, I would leave school but not tell my dad. So every day I would leave school. I'd leave my house in school uniform. And you'd go to the King's Road? I'd go to the King's Road and hang out in the King's Road. I had a Saturday job in the King's Road in a newsagent's opposite Peter Jones. And um, it kind of just got to know everyone there. And 
suddenly there was this amazing place on the King's Road called the Great Gear Market. And it was just at the tail end of punk rock and it, we'd gone through no, into the new romantic era and everybody walked up and down King's Road. King's Road was social media. I say this an awful lot in interviews. King's Road was what Facebook is now and what Instagram is. You went there to be seen. You went there to have your photos taken. It was a place that you went to be discovered as such. So people would swan up and down the King's Road on a Saturday afternoon in their best look and be photographed. And they'd come into the Great Gear Market, which was an indoor market with loads of really creative stalls. There were loads of young designers in there. There was music in there. There was, you know, at the time, all the, all the big hitters had stalls in there, like Russ Deegan, who would run Blitz and all of those clubs. He had a record shop in there. I worked behind that on another stall and, you know, so I just hung out in there and then suddenly started getting a job in there. And that was it. That was your start into the DJing? We were kind of, yeah, really quickly. Because I, would, I suddenly discovered going out clubbing at 14 on a Tuesday night. And then slowly but surely after working in the King's Road, people would go, oh, we're going to this tomorrow night. Do you want to come? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm coming. And, you know, I would tell you everyone. You school? I, of course. And I would tell everyone that I was 18. I would tell everyone, yeah, I'm, I'm 18. My, my, my age changed with whoever I met. Do you get what I mean? I never, ever once told anyone my real age. Never. Because I just didn't want to be taken silly, like as that silly little boy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I always lied. He was, yet again, another coping mechanism of, of like survival, of telling people, okay, I want you to be accepted. They're not going to accept that. It's not hanging out with a 14-year-old. And so before we get into how you came on the scene as a DJ and were flying to Concord by the time you were 18, which I find fascinating. Did your dad ever know that you got expelled from school? Because, How uh, long yeah. did you keep this facade well, We kept it up for about a good seven, six, seven months, and then uh, it all came out. And what didn't, He didn't know that I'd been thrown out of school for sex. He'd, he'd, he'd he heard that I got expelled. I, I, I'd told him that I'd left, and my mum had dropped it in the conversation at some point that I got thrown out, as she always did. And then that, that turned into this massive like, thing and I was like going to leave home and, you know, and it, my dad was like, okay, if you don't want to be there, then that's fine. You know, I kind of made out that I'd been, been bullied for some time and, and all that stuff. But I wasn't. I never, you know, at the beginning of school, I was bullied because I had permed hair, really long permed hair. Oh, God. Uh, and they, I remember them calling me Sally and, and, like that week, at the first week of internship at the, at the school and I thought, oh, Oh, they won't be doing that for long. Do you know what I mean? And I uh, started, started hanging around with the roughest girls in the school, like the hardest girls in the school, and became the bully. And became, okay. I became the bully. I thought, I'm not going to get bullied by anyone. And so you stood up for yourself. Well, that's actually how your dad taught you to grow up, wasn't it? Yeah. You said that if there was anyone that was going to attack you, you would then basically pick up a brick and go over yeah, and, and, and throw yourself. He taught us, if we, were, if we come home crying, he would throw us back out on the street and tell us to go and hit that person. Yeah. Go and beat them up, mm. otherwise you will get belted. Mm. And we would have to go off and do it. You know, my dad would like, you know, he, he taught us. Listen, my dad was really, was so staunch when it came to right and wrong. And he came from a military background. There was no way he was going to allow his children to be bullied for who they were. There was never any discussion of my dad not knowing who I, what my sexuality was. My dad knew. He just didn't want to discuss it. You know, which I always used as a, as a tool to think, oh, my God, he hates me because I'm who I am. He hate me at all. He loved, he lo literally loved that, you know, 
the whole fact of what I was doing and who I was. He, he, he could see that I was really strong within myself, but I wanted to be that person. He passed away in, in um, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, and um, he accepted, yeah, literally. Well, I, I, you know, as I say in the book, I got to know him just before he passed away properly because I spent many a year blaming him for being, for, for who I was, the mess that I was in. I used to blame him on the fact that he hated me, he did this, he did that. It was all tools just to make myself feel better for the, the, because of the state I got myself into. And, you know, when I was sober and I was, started, I was, I was put down there after my court case and I was down there on, on, on bail at my mum and dad's house at 41, you know, it's like I had this kind of second childhood almost because I had to be with them watching mm. TV and I blamed him for everything. And he wasn't that person. He was not that person that I thought he was, that I loved to blame um, and I got really close to him for some time and we got really friendly and, you know, I saw my real dad the way, he, like, you know, and he loved me. Yeah, he absolutely loved me and he saw me get clean, he saw me stay clean, saw me win my court case and then he passed away shortly after in front of me, which I'm very grateful for that, that I had that chance of being there when he passed. Totally, it's the most incredible thing in the world, you know, just to... To see that that he that that how proud he was, how far how far I come. How an amazing thing though to leave you with that, to know mm. that everything you've been through, because you are now yeah. fifteen and a half years sober. And so mm. let's talk about this journey then in between. Mm. So you started on the King's Road. Yeah. How first of all, how did you get the name DJ Fat Tony? Because this must have come around quite well, early. Well, I was, I was I was Fat Tony for a, a reason because after the abuse, I became really fat. It became I, I put on so much weight as. I didn't, it was like, okay, I don't want anyone ever else to get close to me. So by being fat was a really good way as, of, of protecting myself. But of course, when you, you're a fat kid, you're not protecting yourself. What you're doing is yourself, you're putting yourself in the firing line. And of course, people called me Fat Tony, Rich Tony, Fat Tony. And I kind of just thought, you know what? You're not going to get away with that either. I'm going to own that. And I used the name. I called myself Fat Tony. That was it. People go... I'd see people and I'd call people up and I'd say, it's Fat Tony. And that was where the name came from. And obviously the DJing it was added to it much further down the line. Well, not yeah. that much further, actually. Only a good couple oh, of years. pretty quick. Yeah, like uh, by the time I was 16, yeah. But how do you feel about being called DJ Fat Tony now? I love it. Do you? People go all the time, oh, you should change your name, you know, or whatever. I mean, I've had it for the last 40-odd years. People are like, oh, you're not fat. You need... And it's like, you know what? Why would, I, why would I change my name from something that's who I am and, and it's got me to this point in time? You know, it's a great name. It is, it is a yeah, great name. I own it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's who I am. It's a, remem it's, a, it's a memorable name. It is a memorable name, you know. Although there's one in The Simpsons. I was around before him. So you can, it, so you can fuck off as well. But no, you know, it's, it's kind of weird. It's how it's, it, it, I never chose. That name. I never chose to be a DJ. I never chose. 95% of the stuff that happened to me in my life, I never chose. Mm. Can you talk to me then about these highlighting moments where you were then at one point on Concord at 18, yeah. flying to New York? I mean, the whole story of how this came about, I find really fascinating. Oh, what the DJing side of it. Mm -hmm. right, right. So basically, we started, so I started off DJing on a Saturday night for Rusty and Steve at their club called The Playground, which was at the Lyceum, where the Lion King is now. So it was no small club, it was a massive venue. And um, I started playing there, 
because I said the music was shit every week and people were leaving. So Rusty literally said, well, if you think you can do better, you do it. And I turned up the next week and did it. And within a, uh, within a month, we had an, our own night on a, a Tuesday night called Total Fashion Victim, which was at the WAG Club. And at the time, the WAG was like the place to be in London. And we started this, this Tuesday night with a, guy, a fashion designer from St. Martin's School of Art called Stephen Linnard. And we called it TFV. And it was like, and it was, it was it, you know, it wasn't groundbreaking. It wasn't anything. But, you know, people would fly in. And at the time, London was the place to be, as far as you, everyone in America thought. You know, we, it was, we had all the young designers. Everyone, everything was really starting to happen again. Um, and people would come. And one week, Andy Warhol came to the club and all of those people. And they come and they hung out. And, of course, what happened in those days was we didn't have social media, so things would be in magazines and people would write the face. People would read those magazines and say, okay, we want that here. So we, it literally, they came to the club, they met us, and within a week, or I think it was about two weeks later, they, we got, I got a phone call asking me if I wanted to go and DJ in New York. And that was kind of how it all just came about. It literally just springboarded and springboarded and springboarded. And I remember the first time I went on Concord was because I badgered George, as in boy George. Because mm -hmm. you and grew that, up with him from 14, Yeah, I, got, yeah I, I literally met him on, when I was 14 on the King's Road. And um, we were best friends. And he was suddenly the biggest pop star on the planet. And I, I remember going, oh, he was like, what do you want for your birthday? I said, I want to go on Concord to New York. And I was like, he was like, I'm not getting you that. And I was like, please get me that. And I was like, literally, that's all I talked about. So, of course, he, I knew I was going to get it. And he got it, and I went off to New York and uh, literally stayed for months. I remember I was only going for a week. And I ended up staying months, you know. And then, then you know, Steve, I met Steve Rubell and those guys, and they had just opened a club called The Palladium. And literally... I remember being at the Palladium one, when it opened, the week it opened, and thinking, oh, my God, I've arrived. This is the most amazing place in the world. And a month later, I was DJing there. You know, I was kind of, it was always the gift of the gap. It was always the mouth, you know what I mean? The network. You, yeah, you need me. You need me to do this. Do you know what I mean? I can do this. And, and that was it. They were flying me back over. But originally, first of all, they were just flying me over normally, and then, Suddenly, then they saw the potential that I, I managed to get them to keep flying me on Concord. And paying you the big bucks. They were paying me a fortune. Mm. And I remember one, as it says in the book, the one time when we, they flew me in and I had uh, done so much MDMA that night, literally, that my friends met me at the airport and they had these cardboard banners they'd made. They were all off their nuts. And they had bags of MDMA stapled to the banners at the airport. <laughs> So I came through, and of course, you know, we were like doing the pills. And can you imagine that in airport security now? No, it wouldn't happen. <laughs> it wouldn't happen. But you know, then it did, and it was like we uh, went off to the Palladium, and I remember saying, "It's not working. It's not working. I need more." I remember bending down to get something out of my record bag, and I came back up like Cookie Monster. I was like, and uh, they were like looking at me, and I was like, "We've got to go out there." And they were like, "You just got here." And I was like, "We've got to go." And I remember just leaving the record playing and w walking out of the club and going off on this like mad, like tripping, like uh, experience around New York. I remember the next day that Steve rang me and he was like, and I thought, oh my God, I'm, that's it, sacked already. And they were like, oh my God, everyone was talking about last night. You were incredible. 
<laughs> Everyone was loved just there. I'd, I'd played one record. And you weren't there? I wasn't there. How did you get away with that? Fuck knows. I don't know. And then they, I was there two weeks later again, back in New York two weeks later. Literally. I remember still, the first time they came to pick me up from the airport, Steve Rebell and Steve Lewis came, who was his right-hand man. And they, came, they came to pick me up. And I thought it was a bit weird Steve Rebell's coming to meet me from the airport. You know what I mean? It was like, I mean, I didn't really have any kind of inkling of who he was. I knew he'd done other nightclubs. You know, people, this myth of Studio 54 and these massive myths didn't really exist then. They yeah. just, they just shut two years before, you know. He, everyone knew who Steve was on that, you know. But in London, we didn't really know. We didn't really care. Do you know what I mean? We were busy doing our own stuff. And um, to meet him, and then I remember him in the car, and I was in the back of the car with him, and I was sitting there, and I remember him turning to me going, today you'll be massive news in New York, and tomorrow no one will give a shit. And I was like, oh, really? Right, yeah, you watch. I remember literally thinking, shut up, you mug. And, you know, and well, I... Well, it's I, true that you thought that, because, I mean, you... you DJ Madonna's 30th. I've done Prince, all of those things. Yeah, Stevie. of course. I mean, that, you know, it, it, it just, everything always springboarded. Yeah. You know, it was who you knew and how you knew it. And literally just being in the right place at the right time for, for, the, for the most of that stuff. This episode of Live Well, Be Well podcast is proudly sponsored by Buclem, a naturally powered hair care that takes curls seriously. Buclem is a black female-owned independent curl care company proud of their caring ethos and curly community. And I am so proud to be part of that curly community because for years I have struggled to find the right product to help my uncontrollable frizzy curls. Through my years of modelling, I've always had my hair straightened and I feel so excited that I finally managed to find Buclem. And luckily, Buclem is here to help you find your rhythm and fall in love with your hair. Buclem is supporting mental health and the Beware Collective by donating one pound of every order placed on Buclem before the 8th of June. And they are also giving our lovely listeners a 15% discount when you use the promo code BEWELL, which is valid until the 30th of June. When you support our sponsors, you support the Live Well, Be Well podcast and our community. And it sounds to the listener, right, how incredibly glamorous and fast-paced this life sounds, but it morphed into decades of addiction yeah, and totally. suffering. Totally. I, 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 I never wanted to be a DJ. And I, it was something I fell into. I lo I've always loved music and I've always loved the power of music. But I've never, ever wanted to be a DJ. It wasn't something like, oh, my God, this is what I'm going to be. For this is my chosen career. It was something that just happened. Mm. So I never really gave it the respect that it needed. You know, it was, all, it was just, okay, this is my new job. This is what I'm doing this week. Do you know what I mean? Mm. However long it's going to last for. And suddenly when it started taking off, uh, all my friends were getting bigger and bigger and bigger in, within their careers, and they were becoming like the most famous people on the planet. So, and I was just this little DJ, so I didn't really respect the levels of where I was. Mm. You know, flying on Concord, I kind of took for granted because that's what my friends did. All of the things, you know, where I was staying and the travelling and all of that stuff was all taken for granted. And, you know, 
being less than, and this is the bit I didn't put this in the book, but feeling, you know, traveling the world and doing all that stuff. And, you know, most people would give their right arms to do that stuff. I always felt less than in that, in that situation. Because my friends were, as I say, at that point in time, on every front page of the, work, the papers in the world, they were doing what they were doing. And I was just this little DJ. So for me, I always felt less than all of my mates. So I never really grasped where I was in life. Which now we call imposter syndrome, but back then, no, no one even knew what no, that was. No, and it, was, it is imposter syndrome. I would sit on the plane thinking, oh my God, everyone hates me. I'm only here because of this reason or that. It was, yeah, it was very painful. And to deal with that stuff, you know, it started off as partying and, you know, alcohol and drugs like it always does. We go to, we, the first time you go to a club, you don't go there because so-and-so, Jack, the guy from Henley selling cocaine. That's not the reason you go to a club. You go to a club because it's an experience. You want to experience the music, you go there to dance, right? That's why we go. The more we go to those clubs and the more we're introduced to that, that's never enough. For someone like me, that's amazing the first time. Oh, my God, I got so high on the music. I got so high from being in that environment. The next time I go, I want, I want that high back. I won't get that high. I mean, you know, so I, it, it, nothing's ever enough for someone like me with, who, with such addictive personality. And it wasn't long before the drinking got worse and then people would go, oh my God, you, you, you know, you were so drunk. And I'd, and I'd be like, mm, I, I don't remember. And then people go, oh, you need to do some cocaine. It will stop you from being so drunk. And then it's suddenly, that was it. It just spiraled out of control. I thought I was having fun. Mm. I'd say for the first 10, year I, 10 years, I probably was. Mm. And when we talk about addiction, it really expanded across all addiction. Sex addiction, yeah. drug Everything. addiction, yeah. alcohol addiction. Mm-hmm. I never thought I had a drink problem ever. For the 28 years that I used and abused drugs, I didn't think for one minute that I had an alcohol problem until it ran out. And for the majority of that time, it never ran out. I'd always, everywhere I worked, I, you know, it was a part of what I did. And it, you know, it wasn't until 6am in the morning when I'm standing outside the off-licence waiting for the off-licence to open, like the, the local news agent that sold alcohol, waiting for that to open, that I realised I had a problem. But that, it was only alcohol. I, mean, I used to look down my nose at alcoholics. My, my boyfriend at the time, his sister had a real alcohol problem, and I used to think, nothing like that. Got, I'd do class A's, something really special about me. But, I mean, it's crazy. that, that we, uh, we, we, we do these scenarios in our heads where we're, everyone else is always worse than us. So breaking that down, I mean, there's so many moments in that book where I was really shocked at how bad it did get. You lost your house? Uh, I lost the house very quickly. I got this, you know, I, I've been, I mean, prior to that, I've been living in Old Constant Street and all these other houses. And, I, and you know, the, the, trying to get your head around, because everything was always given to me, right? Like, I never really had to earn, go out and earn. I didn't have to do a day's graft in my life. And, you know, from, when I worked in the King's Road, I used to steal so much money out of the till, go and buy so many designer clothes. It, 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 everything was always kind of just, oh, okay, I can get that again. I can do this again. I, you know, there was never a real, like, I think from when I was being abused as a child and he paid me to work for him, I think that's where my lack of care for money came from. I always felt thought money, the more money I had, the more money I should spend because money is dirty. It, it, I never earned it. Do you know what I'm saying? I didn't respect it. Uh, so 
you know, later on, you know, just that, like the, 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 the whole way that I lived everything, you know, drink and drugs just completely took over. And I had no care for it. And, you know, suddenly I'd been living in these flats in Old Compton Street. I lived in Old Compton Street for 11 years. I think I paid rent once. And that's not a lie. Wow. I'd just move from house to house in the 80s and 90s and be like, you're not paying, you've not paid rent for a year. What are we going to do? And I'd be like, he was like, what have you done with it? I, was like, I spent it all on cocaine and I'd be honest about it. Yeah. Because it was like almost like a badge of honour. Well, you said that you spent over a million pounds, you think, yeah. on drugs. Yeah, easily. Mm. Uh, you know, and that's not a boast. I, you know, I, when I did the Mixed Mag documentary, I, I'd said it in a conversation and it came, they used it as, yet again, a tagline which made it like I was boasting. I've never boasted about anything that I've done in that sense because there's nothing to boast about. It, it, it destroyed my life. It was not something like, oh, yeah, I've got a Lamborghini and I've got this. No, no, no. It was that, the badge of honour had gone long before with the teeth. Well, you let's know. talk about meth yeah. mouth. But, like, I literally had lost everything. And, you know, when I did that comment about, yeah, I spent over a million pounds, it was like, how much do you think you've spent? And I said, well, way over a million. So suddenly it became this, I've spent a million pound on coca, you know, and, and it was taken out of context. And you know, I did spend, I probably weigh more than that. You know, and I used to earn an all, oh, I used to, I earn a lot of money from DJing. And um, as I say, I had no respect for it. So everything I earned, I got, I think I was most happiest on a, a Wednesday night when I couldn't afford to buy a packet of cigarettes. And I would have earned three, four thousand pounds over a weekend. And I, on a Monday night, I had nothing left. Tuesday, or on a Wednesday night, I had nothing left to show for it. From the drugs and the mm. alcohol? Yeah, from the drugs, yeah. So you just mentioned they your teeth. Yeah. Can we talk about this? Yeah, we can talk This is something that really, really got to me when I read this part in, the chap in that chapter with the screwdriver and the kitchen knives yeah. and the animals that were feeling so heavy inside your mouth. Can you just... Yeah, I mean, I've always bitten my nails. It's, it's something I've done from a kid. and. Uh, so having my fingers in my mouth is, is a normal thing for me. And when I would do drugs, I would sit and I would just dig at my gums or poke, you know. And where you smoke 200 cigarettes in two days or three days of being up awake, Red Marlboro, you know, your gums start to recede and you start to get this, like, uh, your gums become infected and, you know, they're, they're sore. So I would sit and dig them more. No, and you know, and but very, very, over the course of time, they would get, I would get mouth infections and stuff like that. And when you rub cocaine on your on your gums, or you snort cocaine, or you take drugs, your gums recede even quicker. So my my mouth was in a terrible state. So then suddenly, when I was introduced to new drugs like crystal meth and stuff like that, the paranoia from crystal meth like, that 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 comes part and parcel with that drug made me think that I had animals living in my mouth. And basically, it's a, it's, it's a thing called meth mouth. My whole mouth was septic at one point, like completely septic. Um, and it was rotting, you know. Um, and I would just sit and, I, and the pain was so excruciating. But where I'd taken so much drugs and, and Karen continued to take so much drugs, my face would be numb half the time. And when it was numb, I would use my fingers to push my teeth like to stop the pain and try and get the thinking that, that there were animals in there and stuff like that. And I would dig at them with sticks and dig them with, and get pliers and like kitchen 
utensils and knives and just put them in my mouth and work the teeth free. And I think, well, you know, when I actually got clean, um, I had one tooth left at the front, at the bottom. I wouldn't call it a tooth. I had one stump left at the bottom. And the rest of the mouth is completely broken teeth and rotten and, and yeah, it was awful. And um, I remember I went to, to get, when I was get, uh, applying for rehab, I went for a psychiatric assessment. And I used to rock backwards and forwards like this, thinking that that, that would calm me. <laughs> so I'd be like rocking backwards and forwards, digging it around. Completely insane. And uh, I remember I went to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist was like, have you ever self-harmed? And I was like, no, why would I self-harm? <laughs> Never self-harmed. My partner sat next to me and he was like, you pulled all your teeth out. And I'd be like, yeah, but that wasn't self-harming. That's that my mind had gone so far that I actually thought that that was a normal behavior. And I, I remember when I got clean and having the courage, and it took such courage to go to the dentist. You know, I got through rehab without no teeth. And I literally remember them sending me to the dentist and I was like, oh, I don't know what to do and I'm really ashamed. Because the shame that come with it. You know, I literally would talk to people like this with my hand in front of my mouth for years and years and years. Um, and the shame that, that was attached to that and the way it made me look, and made me, it made me feel. I had no self-worth. I had no self-respect. I had lost all of that long before. And, you know, that process of putting down drink and drugs and suddenly having to deal with those situations that you had created and you're using is a really, really daunting and heavy task. More so than putting down the drink and the drugs, because suddenly you're in this, you, you have to look at the records of your past, you have to deal with it. But mine was in my face. My face had caved in. I mean, I had. It's a really weird, a really weird situation that happens when you do drugs. Your bone structure almost changes. You know, your, your face becomes hollow. You lose all the fat in your face. And, and from other ailments, I, 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 I mean, my skin was way for thin. I looked, you know, it was awful. Just front that, and think, okay, I'm going to get my teeth sorted. I had to go and have a full dental cleanse. I had to remove bits of bone. They had to, you know, it was, it was a pretty heavy thing mm. to come through rehab and then to go through, through that experience. And, and I remember them saying, okay, once they did it, you're not, you won't be able to have any teeth for a year. And I was like, what? How, I can't live without teeth for a year, bearing in mind I'd already done it before. Do you know what I mean? Because uh, I've got this new life to lead. You know, and I used to put bits of tissue paper in my mouth to plump my cheeks out. And so, was... so you lived again for another year without any teeth? No. No. <laughs> I wasn't going to do that. I found a dentist that would, would do the work. So I went and found a dentist. A friend of mine introduced me to a dentist. And I went off and found him. And uh, he, he basically made plates in my mouth because I had to wait for everything to shrink. So what I did was I had these false teeth made and he would, I would go back every three months and he would make them put bits of lining in to make them smaller through the process. And then, of course, then when the, the mouth had healed, only then could they start the work. Right. So that went on for another four or five years. That's a lot to go through. It is a lot to go through. But you know what? At that point in time, when my life was getting better and I was healing, I, I had the strength to go through that because I knew there would be light at the end of the tunnel and suddenly... My life was getting better and, and it, was doing, it was only getting better because I'd found the courage to change. Mm. What do you think brought that courage on? Because there is a chapter in the book called The End. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, all it takes is the love of one person 
to be there at the right time and say the right thing. And that happened, to, you know, one night I was rocking backwards and forwards, digging at that one tooth, and I was in the cross, nightclub in King's Cross. Um, and, I, and they had a green room and I was in the back room and I'd been out three or four, for three or four nights already and I'd had a big fight with, with, with my boyfriend at the time and uh, he had been barred from that club for a very long time because he used to come there and he'd drag me out of the DJ box and, and fight me and, you know, very rightly so because I'd disappear for days on end and uh, he knew I would be there because that was my ways and means to get more of everything. And um, he got barred for fighting me there once. And he would say to people, you know, you're going to find him dead on your toilet floor. You're going to be, you're going to be responsible. You're employing him. And I'd be like, he's mental. He's just trying to ruin everyone's fun. And he wasn't. He was just, all he was doing was trying to save my life. And um, he turned up that night. And I, and I remember my friend coming and saying, Johnny, as we call him in the book, is here. And I just thought, oh, I can't cope with this tonight. And I literally remember just sitting there thinking, please don't let him in here. And he came in and I turned around and I looked at him and I just thought, no, please God, don't, I can't cope with this. And I, at this point in time, weighed just about just over seven stone. I, I was emaciated. I, I was on death's door. All I ever thought about at that point in time was dying. Um, about my funeral and everything that went with it. And I remember him coming and putting his hand on my shoulder and I looked at him and I remember him saying, there was no judgment in his face. Normally it'd be like, ah, oh, you're, you know, get out of here. And, all this. and he literally just put his hand on his shoulder and, and all he said to me was, what happened to you? And, that, and it makes me always want to cry because it was, the, it was that moment that changed my life. It was suddenly like, I couldn't look at him and I couldn't answer him and I started to cry. And, and it was that moment of the end. I really felt that I'd come to a very, very, very big brick wall, and I just thought I can't move on from this. I'm either going to die or I'm going to do something about it. And that little pilot light came on, and two days later, I was I left the club room that night, and two days later, I went to see a doctor, my doctor, who I'd never told that I had a drug addiction, even though he knew. I mean, everyone knew. You know what I mean? And uh, I went to see him, and I said I need help. And he said, I've been waiting for you to say, come and see me for a very long time. I was like, I'm ready. I just can't do this anymore. And uh, he, he, he introduced me to a drug drop-in centre, which was in City Road in Islington. And I went there. And that's kind of where the process started. Kind of decided that I wanted to stop and I wanted to, get, I wanted to live. That was it. It wasn't about stopping taking drugs or drinking. It was the fact that I wanted to live. I didn't want to die anymore. And I wanted to die for so long. And I'd done everything in my power to try and kill myself on a daily basis. You know, by taking drugs and still thinking that I was in control. I, was, I hadn't been in control for a very long time. Um, and that was it. I, I met a, a, a wonderful woman who I mentioned in the book called Ben Checker, who basically became my care worker and stuff. And she helped me get into rehab. She helped me do the whole process of stopping and making me believe. Because, you know, if you, in the finished book, which the hardback, and I do the thank yous, and the very last line of the book is, if when we believe, we're halfway there. And that was it. I was suddenly on this journey, a new journey, where 
I had managed to get myself 30 days clean and then I went into rehab. You know, I, you know, I say I managed to get myself clean. I, it wasn't, I, I was not alone. I can't do this on my own. You know, my way doesn't work. So I'd found a new way of kind of living. I'd found a 12-step program, which I started attending and found these new people that kind of had clean time. And I was like, wow. And, you know, I, but I still didn't know how to stop on my own. And I needed help. And it was that moment that I asked for help. And, I sent some, you know, that's one of the strongest things anyone can ever do, is to actually say, I need help. You know, and actually mean it. You know, not I need help for financial gains, or I need help because I want you to feel sorry for me. I, I, you know, to actually say to someone, I really need help, I can't do this anymore, please help me. It takes guts. And that's why, you know, if someone sends me a message via whatever on social media, via Instagram or whatever, I always reply because that's the cry for help. And, you know, if, I, if someone hadn't listened to me when I was in that position, I'd be dead now. You know, and it, all it takes is that one moment to change someone's life, that one bit genuine love and concern that's what it takes sometimes i really felt your emotion when you were telling me about that part of the end and it's still obviously so prominent that strong feeling in you now how do you how do you deal with those emotions when they arise because even when you were writing the book when you told me about obviously feeling sick you still went through that even though you're dealing with the trauma i think mm. it's really important to still say you know it's still being part such a big part of your life for me now, the way I deal with that stuff is the fact that my life is incredible because of the things I don't do anymore, not because of the things I do, right? And, you know, I have coping mechanisms today. I, I've learned tools to deal with my emotions. You know, I just lost my dog recently and I was devastated. And, you know, that had happened seven years ago even when I was even seven years clean, I probably would have picked up a drink or a drug. I didn't because I'm in a different position now. And, you know, I, I, my life is so incredible. I know that drinking or taking drugs or any of those other destructive behaviours will destroy what I've got. And I don't want to destroy that. Things are too good for me. You know, I have freedom today. And I, I, I don't spend my life wanting, uh, wanting more. Don't get me wrong, sometimes I have days where enough's not enough. But you know what? The majority of the time, I, I, I'm really content with who I am. And that kind of helps me work through that stuff. You know what I mean? You know, I went through a breakup whilst writing the book as well with my partner who I'd been with for eight years. And probably one of the hardest things I've ever gone through because, you know, I was really responsible for a lot of the damage that I caused in this relationship, being clean. You know, it's, 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 when you, you know, you deal with one addiction at a time, I think it's always best to, you know, there's always other things looming around and it will always pop up in other areas. And you have to be really, really mindful of your behavior because I always say that drinking drugs will never kill me again. And I, I can say hand on heart, I truly believe that, but my behaviors will be the one that take me down. Because, you know, I can wake up in the morning and think, oh, today's a really good day to cheat on my boyfriend. Like, just like that, it will come into my mind. And I will think, no, no, today's not a good day to do that. Mm. You know, whereas before, 
that would come into my mind. And, I, I, you know, an, an obsession is one thought that overrides all others. And I still get those obsessions. I get obsessions around shopping, obsessions around eating. If I have sushi on a Monday night and it's really good, I'll have it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I have to watch that stuff. When I do that stuff, I think, okay, right, what's going on for you? You need to stop this, you know, because I, I still look for things to change the way I feel. It's interesting, isn't it? Like when you can look at addictive personality, somebody could go from a really unhealthy addiction like drugs and then become completely addicted in the gym. Yeah. And then it can or be work. or work. Yeah. And, do you, and that's how you would probably categorize yourself. Always, totally. It always shifts to something else. Shopping was a really good one. I still love shopping. I, I still get high from shopping. You know, sometimes I'll be in a, in a, in a changing room and my nose will start running. Because that, 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 that neuro path is still open. You know, that feeling that I used to get from shopping when, when I was high, like being, in, you know, it, it, my nose will start running. I start, or I start gurning. Still? Bizarre, still, like 15 and a half years, yeah. And do you feel that you still struggle with a sex addiction today? Totally. I'll be, you know, if I was to sit and say, oh, no, I've got that under wrap. No, no, no. I struggle with addiction full stop. Sex addiction, I'm, you know, I'm in the most transparent relationship I've ever been in in my life. My partner knows absolutely everything about me, which is remarkable because I've never, ever been in a relationship where someone knows everything about me. And I truly believe he's coming to my life at the right time for that reason. And, you know, I don't wake up today thinking, oh, right, I'm going to destroy my relationship. You know, it will come into my mind sometimes. And I just think, what are you thinking? You know, I will shake it out, it will go. Um, I will always struggle with that. Because like most people, when they think, oh, I've had a really tough day today, I need a drink. I don't think that. I will think, oh, today's been a really good day. You know, I get to the point where I, I find it really hard to accept someone wants to love me for me. I've always struggled with that. As you know, from a very young age. and. You know, you know, I, I will. It will always be there. Like, you know, I'm, I'm only one drink away from being an addict again, like an alcoholic again. It's always going to be there, and I have to always be mindful of it. To say that I don't deal with that stuff on a daily basis would be would be rubbish. I, of course, I do. But you know what? I've got all of that under control right now. Uh, like, I don't have a drink or a drug. I don't cheat on my boyfriend today, all right, and I don't cheat on myself. That's primarily the one, totally. I'm not going to cut myself short. No way, man. I thought I've just met the most incredible person that struggles with exactly the same things as I do. And as I said before, I can't do that. We can. Do you know what I mean? I have to remember that. And yeah, of course I'm always going to struggle with that stuff. But the struggle doesn't have to be a struggle if I deal with it and look at it. What's the coping mechanisms that you do to keep up that self-love for yourself? I think self-affirmations are a really good thing. I think that if you're having a really bad day, like I had a bad day on Sunday around my dog. I was at home on my own and it came on me and I was like, oh, no, I can't deal with this. And I think that, you know, to, to, do, to, to look at yourself in the mirror and affirm yourself that you can do this, you're worth this, that you're, very, you know, you're lovable, you know, you love yourself. You know, it, it, it really does, you know, by just saying that stuff, getting it out of here and putting it out into the world really helps. I, I uh, find myself praying in the back of taxis on the way to work. And, you know, because I will vocalise 
if I vocalize something, it takes the power out of it. Mm. You know, also, I think that, you know, if you're sitting at home and you're feeling really low and you're having a bad day, change your environment. Get up and just walk out the house and go for a walk. I guarantee by the time you get home, you're going to feel 99% better. It really does work. It's just about changing that mind shift. Mm. You can wallow in, in misery, self, self-misery all day. If you, you know, it's up to you how you change it. Do you know what I mean? And I've learned, if I start to feel that way, I, I just think well, an hour in, I'm like, oh, what am I doing? Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I, as I always say, slapping your own face is the only way to wake up. It really is. Someone else slapping your face causes a row or a fight. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But, you know, it, it, it really is. It's about just thinking, okay, right, why am I feeling like this? I know why I'm feeling like this. Let me just get out and change this. Mm. And some people might not even realise what they're feeling. Like. I think a lot of people get very disconnected from how they feel. And of course. Catastrophic thoughts, negative thought patterns. Learned behaviour. Yeah. It's learned behaviour. And it's about changing those learned behaviours. Because I'm quite happy being a victim. I'm quite happy being wallowing in self-misery because that's all I've learned all most of my life and those were coping mechanisms. I don't use those mechanisms now. It's like having a rusty old toolbox of tools, you know, when you suddenly can go and get new shiny ones that work. You know, I've got new shiny tools. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, do you know what? That's the hardest thing to say because you are, your brain is really lazy and for teaching new neural pathways is really hard. That's why habits are so hard to yeah, stick to. I, I remember when I first started gurning, like when I DJ, when I started going back to DJing and um, I've been like playing and people are like, oh my God, he's not sober enough because like, my jaw would go. And it was basically the association with doing what I my DJ, my brain, those neural paths would straight away go to my jaw and my jaw would swing. Because they always, always, I was always, literally always gurning when I DJed. So to learn how to overcome that, I had to go and see this guy called Michael Hebel, uh, who, who did a book, he, he wrote a book called uh, Brilliant. And it basically was like turning how into, turning why into how. Why do I feel like this? How can I change the way I feel? You know, so he taught me very quickly how to use the tip of my tongue to stop, me, stop, stop myself from gunning by putting it on the back of my teeth as a pressure point. So when I was DJing, I would use my tongue and it would stop me from getting because my mind would be concentrating on putting the tongue on the back of the teeth. Really simple stuff. And it really worked. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I find myself today, you know, my two traits, the worst traits are when I'm tired, I lie. Still, I still lie just to get out of doing something, you know, and I don't need to lie. I just need to say, you know what, I'm tired. I'm not going to do that. And my other one is learning to say no because without explanation, such a gift. I think that's the hardest one, though. It to really say no. is because I, 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 you know, I've been a people pleaser. Yeah, I'm a caretaker as well. But you know, just uh, I would give away so much of my time or so much of Tony that I'm left with nothing, and I'm bank- that bankrupts me spiritually, mentally, and physically. And I can't be that person today. I need to have some back for me. Yeah, yeah. That's self-love. That is the self-love part. That's where self-love comes from. I have to have that time for myself to do what makes Tony feel good. And before we get onto that, which is something I'm going to bring up, there's something I do really want to just make sure we, we talk about, which is the chapter when you talk about HIV. Mm. Because I think it's a really important issue to talk about, yeah. especially for a gay man. Yeah. Um, can you talk to me about how your journey was with, first of all, finding out that your partner was tested? Well, with, I remember, you know, I was living in Old Compton Street at the time, and I was in my 20s, and I remember Tom coming back 
and he'd been out drinking and he'd been, you know, been in a relationship about a year and a half by this point. And I remember him coming back and saying, I've got something to tell you at like three in the morning. And I was like, tell me tomorrow you're drunk. He was like, I need to tell you now. And he, and he, and he literally said, I went and got tested today and I'm positive. And I was like, all right, well, okay, whatever, go to sleep and we'll talk about it tomorrow. And kind of that was the conversation. And then slowly but surely Tom got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, um, I remember, you know, going to get tested about a month down the line. I thought, okay, I need to go and get tested. And they had same-day testing back then. But, he, you know, I went and they told me, you, you, you know, you, it was negative. And I was like, okay, thanks. You know, uh, don't know how, because I'd never had protected sex ever with Tom. And basically, uh, just carried on with life. And, and Tom got worse and worse anyway. But Tom passed away from full-blown AIDS in uh, 95, I think it was, around then. Um, 94, 95. And, and I just carried on as normal. And, you know, literally, the, as the drug possession, the, the, the drugs got worse and worse and worse. Situation, my situations obviously got worse. And I, I used to think that uh, I'd go out and I'd pass out and I'd be blacking out. And all of these situations happen. Uh, and, the, you know, the, the meth mouth, and I couldn't fight off disease. And that's the reason why I had meth mouth, because I had no immune system. It had gone. But I just thought that it was all to do with the drugs. And um, I was in so much denial, so much denial for so long. Um, and anyway, one day my mum came to my house on a Tuesday, remember, and I, I literally was unconscious in the kitchen on the floor. She found me unconscious in the house and she rushed me to hospital. And they basically said there and then, okay, you tested positive, we're going to keep you in. And I was like, I want to go home. And I remember sitting there thinking, don't have the strength to go anywhere. And I went into hospital and I uh, got very, very bad very quickly. Uh, I was in there for about, I think I was in there for about four months uh, in all. And basically what had happened was I'd been, uh, I'd been I'd tested positive, but my viral load was so high because they said I'd probably had it for about 10 years. Um, and my viral load was in the billions, like in the millions of my, my T-cell count was in, just in the low hundreds, like lower than 100 at one point. And um, they put me into isolation. I was in a room for like, and I deteriorated really quickly. I think that it, was, it had a lot to do with the coming off drugs at that point in time as well. And just being locked in a room, people had to wear face masks, which is nothing new these days. But, but then, you know, and I used to think, and, and, and I just thought it was just awful anyway. It had gone into my brain, and I, they kept having to lumber punch me and lumber punch me and lumber punch me. And I got so bad that uh, they put me into a coma, uh, induced coma, so that they could take the swelling down off the brain. And uh, I saw, I don't remember anything, obviously. I remember coming around, um, and I'd been in coma for months, and my mum was there holding my hand. And now I've got to cry again. And my mum was there holding my hand, and I remember just coming around and just thinking, well, I don't understand what's going on here. And um, I lay there, and, and so but surely over the course of time, they told me that, you know, that I, I nearly passed away, that I had pneumonia, and I had all of these things, and I couldn't fight it. And they basically um, had put me on a new trial drug. My mum had given them the permission to 
put me on a, on a trial drug, uh, which basically saved my life. Uh, and slowly but surely over the course of that time, I came out of isolation. I was allowed back into a ward. And I, I was slowly progressing and getting better and started putting on weight and, and everything due to the drugs that they'd put me on. And um, I still wanted drugs. And the moment I could get out of that bed, I'd be out in the street scoring drugs. I'd have people come up to the hospital bringing me drugs. You know, it, it meant nothing that I nearly died. My addiction was so much stronger than I was that that's all I thought about. You know, my boyfriend came to the hospital one time, I remember, I'd been in, 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 in the room and he, he was like, you, you've got cocaine around your nose. And I was like, no, 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 it's face cream. And I remember him going absolutely mental. And I was like, you know, you need to speak to the doctors or the nurses. They'll tell you if, I'm on coke, if I've been doing drugs. They'll know by my blood pressure. And, I, you know, like convinced, trying to convince him that I wasn't doing drugs. I was, he knew straight away, you know. And it was just like the fact that I had no respect for what I put my family, what I didn't put my family through, that's the wrong thing, but what my family had gone through and what he'd gone through and everyone else around me, around my diagnosis. And, and what I'd gone through, he just, yeah, he couldn't cope with it. And I, I, off I went again. Got out of hospital. I remember coming out of hospital and then uh, just carrying on as normal. It was bizarre. I just went straight back into my old ways very, very quickly. No, far from it, no. I just thought, okay, well, it, you know, it, it really was a case of, Okay, well, I didn't die that time. I'm going to die this time. Did you think you might die from AIDS at one point? Um, well, I nearly did. <laughs> you know what I mean? I literally nearly did. And, you know, to, to I mean, I never ever once said to anyone, oh, you know, I nearly died of AIDS. I, I, I used the word HIV quite frequently because it was, it was, it sounds so much nicer. Do you know what I mean? It's Even in this day and age, yeah. we still have the stigma attached to it. It's 20, it's, you know, 2022 and we still have stigma attached to the words hiv and aids you know it, it, it's no longer a death sentence we we're we're probably a year away from a cure they've already testing the injections now you know it, it's groundbreaking stuff but you know what i kind of i never dealt with it i just progress i just plowed straight on plowed straight uh, straight back on doing drugs because of the shame that it attached, was attached to it. It's always to do with shame. But just by talking about it and making it open, you know, when it came to putting it in this book, it, I never discussed it with anyone, really. I never put it out there. I talked quite openly about addiction. I talked quite openly about everything in my life, apart from that one thing, because I still had to turn my shame around it. I was still... Felt shameful. Oh my God, people are going to see me in a different light. People are going to judge me. I've done some of the worst things that you could possibly do to another human being in the sense of addiction and, 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 and the cheating and the lying and everything that went with it. And I had no shame around that stuff. But when it came to something that I, I was not responsible for, I wasn't responsible for myself catching HIV. It was an epidemic. It's where we were. And, you know, I still had shame around it, and it's in this book, and it's a really important bit in this book because I want people to know what I went through and what 
that I, I can now openly talk about it. I'm, I, I feel proud that I can talk about it. I do. I've kind of accepted. You know, when, I, when, when we were writing the book and Mikey was like, you, there's bits you don't need to put in. And my publisher said the same. And I was like, you know what? I'm writing one book. <laughs> one book. And I want everything to be in there. And I think that what I've gone through, if it will help one person go and get tested or one person go and get asked for help in any of the situations that we discuss in that book, and that book's already a bestseller in my eyes. Do you know what I mean? Because it will change people's lives. And I just think the more honest I am to myself, the more honest I can be with everyone else. And, I, and that's to me, is it's a job well done. And um, I'm proud that I've, that I've put everything in the book that needs to be in the book. You know, it's, it's, it's not an easy read. But it's because it's being honest with yourself. And I think that's one of the hardest things you can ever do. And, and you know, I mean, even just reading it and the proudness I got from just knowing how such a brave individual can put themselves completely out onto paper. Not many people can do that. No. And you really need to give yourself gratitude for Thank that. Thank you. Uh, I've, I've learned that since writing the book because the amount of people that have said, oh, my God, it's so honest, it's so unvarnished. Do you, you kind of, the only person that gets, you give a bad time to in, in it is, is you. you. And, and that's kind of like, there was one review from this lovely lady that said that she found it like a, uh, the, the fact that I, I am so hard on myself in certain areas in it is almost, you, you love me more and you, I can't, it's the, the fact that I'm unvarnished in it is, is like almost like a, a superpower to the book because it's, it, you know, I, I'm just honest. I'm not going to overgloss things. I've done that. I've, there's no point to it. I just think that if I wrote a book about, oh, so-and-so said this and this was amazing and we went on this private journey and we did that and all that rubbish, what a boring book that would be. Some people would find that interesting, you know, but um, that wouldn't be true. But it's being real and it's being honest, isn't it? It's being yourself. Yeah. Which was so long Which I can, I, I've never been myself until, until I came into recovery and it's taken 15 years to actually get to being who I am, to be in a relationship where I can know that I'm not doing any, anything bad and there are no secrets. I'm just to actually go through that. It's, it's, it's remarkable. It really is. You know, there's no, you know, for years I kind of tolerated a lot of things. and I, It's not about tolerance, it's about acceptance. And I accept that, that I can be loved today. What would you say to anyone who doesn't feel like that? He can't feel that they can be accepted? It's all about small steps. It's all about just going outside of your comfort zone and putting yourself out there and just saying, you know what, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is what happened to me. It's not going to happen to me again. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to be me. And, and, you know, if you don't want to accept that, then I don't want to be tolerated. You know, as a gay a, a man and, and, you know, being a member of the LGBTQ plus community, we, we, find, we, we come up against a lot of tolerance. And those days have got to change. It's all about acceptance now. And I've really... No, if you can't accept me for who I am, then you're not in my life. You know what I mean? It's, a, you know, that internalised homophobia that most gay men have in certain areas is, is, is such a weight around our necks. You know, the, the shame that I had around being HIV positive, the shame I had around addiction, the shame that I had around so many things in my life that were holding me back. 
and they're not holding me back anymore. You know, I have sleepless nights over this book. I won't lie to you. I've woken up at 3 a.m. and thought, oh, my God, things are really good for you right now. Why are you going to fuck it up by releasing a book and letting everyone know the truth? Because, you know, I do, we do these brunches and it's full of middle-aged, like, women that come and they love what we do, love me, for, you know, which is it's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And I just think, are they going to understand it? Are they going to read it and read it in the wrong context? It worries me. But you know what? That's not happened yet. But I can dwell on that. I can mm. wake up at 3 a.m. and think, oh, my God, what have you done? You've just, uh... Anytime you put yourself out there, mm. you're going to feel that. Yeah. Because it's a judgment. Yeah, of course. It's a judgment that someone's going to make of you and, and tear part of your life that is way such a massive part of you. Mm. And so if someone can kind of tap into that vulnerability, that shield's gone. Oh, they will do. They yeah. will be. They'll be there, as they always is with anything you do in life. But bring it on. But you're going to help, you'll help so many people as I with said this in the book. book. No, one, no one can judge me like I've judged myself. And also, everything in that book, I've lived that shame. So I'm not going to get it again. So don't even try and bring it to my table. I've, I've, you know, by putting it out there, it, it's been put out there for a reason. If I, was, if I had any shame around it, it, it wouldn't be in that book. And everything's in that book. Do you know what I mean? What journey you've been on. <laughs> Uh, I always say it's not over yet. There's a lot more to come. But you know what? I just think I just uh, one day a week or two days a week, just not being on the drama triangle is, is fucking amazing. Do you, you know get addicted I mean? to that? Of course you do. Totally. I, I would, I lived for drama. You know, as I say in the book, I used to play No More Drama by Mary J. Blige on loop. On loop. My neighbours used to come and knock on the door saying, please stop playing that fucking record. And I, t you know, I, I would play on loop because that's all I ever had was drama. And I loved drama because it, 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 it you know, it, it, it gave me a purpose. It, yeah. you know, and it, I, I would get off on drama and, you know, fuck, man. I, you know, I'm uh, drama free sometimes is, is a remarkable experience. Do you get what I mean? Contentment. Mm. It's a big Laying one. at home, I was just going to say with my dog watching TV, um, is, is a gift. Do you know what else is a gift, though? It's your humour. Yeah. <laughs> Which I've been waiting to get to. I have to say, your Instagram got me through lockdown. Your Instagram, your Instagram memes. You have this very natural way of being able to say something that everyone's thinking without causing any offence. Mm. And that's a skill to have. Well, you know, the, 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 so, I mean, my Instagram is run on stolen memes. You know, and the majority of stuff I've, I take on is, you know, I look at his Instagram as a library. You know, we put pictures of ourselves on, we put pictures of things on, we, we make memes, we put whatever we put on there, people can come and take and use and, and store and take them. That's what Instagram is. It's not the fucking Louvre. It's not the National Portrait Gallery where you go and look and you can't touch and you leave and you can buy a postcard. It's not. That stuff that you're putting out there, it's for anyone to use. And, and people forget, oh, you posted this, I, that, I posted that, it's my, whatever. Good, knock yourself out. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and I collect pictures. My, I probably have at the moment on my phone 65,000 pictures. I just literally constantly, I'm on social media, I screen, I take, 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 take. I'll add, and then we'll come up with things. But my mind, I, you know, I, in the morning, I, I think very clear, carefully about what I'm going to post as my thought of the day. You know, it... it you know, there's a real art to posting at the right time of what you do. Do you know what mm. I mean? And when we're in lockdown, I had, I had the, you know, 
switch on the telly and it was doom and fucking gloom from 6 a.m. to the minute you went to bed. It was fear based. Everything was being pumped full of fear. We were fearful of this, fearful of our neighbours, fearful of the, 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 the neighbours cat might have cat COVID. You know, that's the levels it went to on a daily basis. You switch on the television, there was no relief from it. And I just thought, okay, with Instagram, you know, I'm going to start posting really stupid things, just funny things, because you know how my mind works. I, I just find humour in everything. I think when you've gone through what you've gone through in life and you can laugh at it, that's kind of over, overcoming it to a certain extent. Do you get what I mean? And I find humour in, in drug memes. I find, I, laugh, I love to laugh. I'm sorry, I've earned the right to laugh. And I laugh at my own mistakes. I laugh because... That's why I'm, I'm easiest at laughing at stuff. Do you get what I mean? And, and it, during lockdown, something really remarkable happened that, you know, people warmed to my Instagram so, so much and it, it kind of propelled my um, profile massively. And, it, you know, and I, and I get so many people coming up to me going, can I just tell you, you saved my lockdown. And I think it's amazing. It's amazing. It is amazing. You pure, you bought sheer joys people in the hardest time. Evening Standard said that I saved 2020. Uh, they did this big story on me, which was I thought was pretty amazing. You know what I mean? Like they did like this whole front page thing of it. And I, you know what? Kind of, it was just what I do. I was at home posting pictures. Do you know what I mean? Obsessively. You know what I mean? Like literally obsessively, you know, and, and it was it was it wasn't contrived. It wasn't me trying to trying too hard. I was just doing finding things and just posting. Mm. But we need humor in our lives. We do need humor in our lives more more than ever. Mm. You know, we, we're, we're living in troubled times. It's like, you know, we're going backwards in so many areas and we have to find that that relief. Someone like me, I don't have the choice of going to the pub when I finish work. I do have that choice, but it's a choice I choose not to make, to go and have a drink or, or I don't, you know, oh God, I could kill this or I could kill for that. You know, I actually, you know, since I got into recovery, I, I, I learned to laugh properly. You know, I used it's to the laugh. the best drug. Yeah, it really is. Music and laughter, the two best drugs you'll ever, ever, ever come across in your life. With those two things in your life, you're a happy person. I mean, just laugh. I, I laugh at every situation. What's your favourite track that makes you feel uplifted? What would you play? Oh, apart from every George Michael track, Under the Sun. You know, if you if, literally, um, there's a track called by the Kings, uh, by um, Soldiers of Twilight, and it's called Believe. And the words to it probably helped to, to change my life because it says in it, you know, when we're halfway there, we, when you believe you're halfway there, and it's like, you've got to believe that your life will change. And I listen to it when I'm really feeling low because it lifts me so much. You know what I mean? I just find I've, any kind of music, you know, I don't listen to music. I feel music, you know, and it will change the way I feel. I can put something on, you know, it, it, it's such an amazing thing when you embrace music because, you know, it's like a, a time machine. You suddenly close your eyes and that person's back in the room with you. That you you associate that track with or it takes you back to that euphoric time and that feeling it will give you goosebumps because it's 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 noise it's vibration it it, it lifts the, the, lifts you to a different height no drug will ever take you to well you know you just, it's about 
just embracing it. And I, I love music. And I, so I will literally say, hey, I'm not going to say the name because it starts playing music all through the house. Uh, and literally, it has my tunes on there. So I just say, hey, play some music and it will play all my favourite tunes, one after, one, one after another. It is therapy music. It really is. It really is. It saved my life. Mm. As much as recovery, music is my recovery. I love my job more than I've ever loved, loved it right now. I loved what I do. I love playing music. And it shows. It shows. Even if I'm in a bad mood, I will go to work and it will change everything. When my dog passed away, I went to work the next day. I wasn't going to go. And every track I put on, I started crying because it had that connection. It had that, you know, and people, people, you know, they all knew that my dog had passed away and they weren't expecting me to turn up at the brunch. And, and it was probably the, one of the best things I've ever done is by going to work that day. It just took me out of myself. What was going to do? Start home crying all day. You know what I mean? And music has that power. It really does. Because you don't bottle it up, you actually let it out. And that's the biggest type of therapy. It's the most powerful. A hundred percent. As I say, if you've got a problem, talk about it. When, when you, if you have a problem and it's in your head, it will be manifesting something so big and something so much worse than the original problem. Talk about it. Get it out there in the, in the open and take the power out of it. When we hold on to stuff, we give it power. And, you know, by letting go of it, it's, it's it, you know, go out and dance. Go out and listen to music. Put on your favourite track. Close your eyes and breathe. Honestly, it will change everything. But don't go up to you and ask for a request because you don't take requests. I don't do requests. You know, the record the book, <laughs> I don't take requests. Not about asking me to play a track. It's about, I don't take, I've never taken requests in life. If you said to me, oh, eat your, eat your greens, I'd like you to eat, I'd be like, mm, I'm not eating my greens. Do you know what I mean? Don't do this. I'm going to do it. Do you know what I mean? It's always been the same. And so when it came to writing, coming up with the title for the book, it was, it was I, I, I kind of just said straight away, I want to call it I Don't Take Requests to Mike. And Mike was like, bit of an odd one. I was like, no, we're not. And he was like, well, kind of makes you sound like a Radio 1 DJ. I was like, no, it's not about, yes, I've, I've never, if you ask me to play something, I'll tell you to fuck off. I, you know, because um, that's like, I'm doing my job. Don't, if I went into your shop and said to you, like, I, I had this conversation with Victoria Beckham. I said, if I went into your shop and you had green dresses and I said, can you do it in blue? And you said, that's not part of my collection. Would, how would that make you feel? She'd be like, yeah, you're right. I said, so don't come to me and say, can you play this? I'm doing my job. Cough. So, you know, it kind of, kind of tied in with everything. I love that. So have you ever taken a request? I feel like in your book I read that you did once. Yeah, of course I have. For money. Yeah. <laughs> like, like an old prostitute, I am. No, like, no, I have. Of course I have. I mean, you know, there's been situations where people have asked me really nicely, and I think, you know what? Yeah, I'll do that for you because the way you ask me. But you know what? It, it, there's nothing more annoying when you're playing somewhere and you're doing, you know, a set, and you've got, like, 2,000 people or even 200 or even 20 people dancing in a room, and they're having the time of their life, and you've got some idiot comes up to you and says, Key place in garage. Or you, it's like, why? why? Why are you not in the moment where everyone else is? Why do you feel it's so, you're so special that you can come and ask me to change what I'm doing? Do you know what I mean? Put down your phone, put it in your handbag and go and dance. Do you know what I mean? I'm not just saying it's always women that ask me for requests. But, you know, it, it kind of, you know, 
They're not in the moment. They're not content. They want to change what you're doing. And you don't need to do that. Let me do my job. So the last question I want to leave you with, shall I ask every guest in the show, yeah. is what does live well, be well mean to you? Live well, be well. And, you know, health is about not about what you eat. It's not about, you know, just like going out for a run. It's, it's, it's a recipe. It's about how, having healthy thoughts and, and having good thoughts. So live well means just having a balance. Everything has to be balanced. If I do too much of one thing, it tops, the scales top, and it all comes tumbling down on me. So it's about balance. It's about balance. So that's live well. And what's the other quick? And be well is exactly the same thing. You know, if, if I'm living well, I will be well. I'm in the moment. And I just think, stop worrying about what's happening next week and just live for today. Be here right now. And make sure that you, you know that this is enough. This is enough. You know, it, it, it's, it sounds really, you know, oh, it's easy for him to say, but you know what? It's never been easy for me to say. It's more harder for, for people like me that struggle with being in the moment and it's taken 15 and a half years of hard graft to actually think okay i'm all right with who i am right now i'm not too old i'm not too fat i'm not too this i'm not too that you know what i mean i'm all right with being who i am and that's kind of where being all right comes from with that just being okay living in the moment i think that will inspire a lot of people well, i hope so i hope people like the book I do. They. I'm so worried about I it. do not be worried. I can contest that it's an incredible read with a lot of highs and lows, a lot of moments which made me cry, yeah. um, but a lot of humour. And it feels like that's this interview as well. We've gone through, like, I've seen your emotion, I've seen the trauma come up and arise because you had some, some of the most horrific moments, but you've also harnessed that with humour. You know, it's just, I have to be me. And if you can't accept that, if people can't accept who I am and what I do and what I say and what I've written in my book, then find someone else. Hate on. You know what I mean? I'm done with that. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. All the information covered in today's podcast with important links is in today's show notes. And if you haven't yet, please do hit the subscribe button and do share this with friends, family, co-workers, whoever you love, please share this podcast. It means more than you realize. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. If you love this podcast i would really urge you to support us on patreon our patreon community really do help keep this podcast going and alongside being within the community you can also get exclusive access to early release podcasts and specific q a's with me on topics that you want to hear being a patreon member of this podcast does really help keep the support going because it's not easy to deliver this every week without you guys so thank you so much. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please go to patreon forward slash live well, be well to become a member and support this podcast.
Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.